My church experience as a kid, as a teenager, as a young adult was Baptist. My church experience as a kid, as a teenager, as an adult was Baptist. And Baptists are famous for splitting up over different kinds of reasons. The color of the carpet. You may not know this, but as a Baptist in the 1970s, you had three choices. Red, green, or blue. Red meant that you cared about the gospel. Green meant that you cared about hymns. And blue meant you were liberal. <laughs> we, would, we would divide over things like whether or not the preacher should use any other version other than the King James Version, the authorized version. Now, part of this splitting up from Baptists came from our polity. Baptists vote on a lot of things. And when you vote on something, there's a winner and a loser. And sometimes losers are not gracious in defeat. And let's be honest, sometimes winners are not gracious in victory. Okay? After Jenny and I had been dating a while in college, I had decided that it was time for her to meet my people, my church people, my Baptist church family. And the way that you did that, the way that we had time to be with each other was after the Sunday evening service. So you would have to sit through the Sunday evening service, and then afterward you would go have dessert together, pie and cakes and things. And so I was so excited because she was going to meet my mentors and all my people after church. I did not know that that Sunday evening was the quarterly business meeting. I did not know that the church was in the process of hiring an associate pastor. I did not know that the hiring committee had changed the job description for the pastor they were going to hire and not didn't tell anyone in the church. It was a rough church business meeting. In the back of the sanctuary were men my current age, men in their 50s, doing this with their voices. Woo, woo. Because they felt that they were being railroaded by the hiring committee. The church was doing bad things. And needless to say, Jenny did not meet my people that night. <laughs> every Baptist church in Nicholasville, every white Baptist church in Nicholasville, over the last four decades that's been started, has been started as a split from Nicholasville Baptist. Now, so I talk about being a Baptist, because that's my background and, my, and that's my heritage. But let's be honest about American Protestants. They split up all the time for all kinds of reasons, don't they? They, they American Protestants split up the type of music. We're going to do hymns because we want to glorify and honor God. We're going to do choruses because we want to actually worship God. And there they go, fighting it out with each other. Um, churches over types of programming. We're going to have classes because we want people to actually learn the Bible. We're going to have small groups because we want people to actually grow in their faith. And on and on it goes. On and on it goes. You cannot have women pastors. Oh, yes, you can. You cannot speak in tongues. Oh, yes, you can. And we fight over all kinds of stuff. It's funny when you say it that way, isn't it? My wife's... Uh, Pastor from childhood, Pastor Dick, the one who was in a wheelchair for the longest time in his pastoral ministry, told a story about a church in little old Hampton Roads, Virginia. And this church had a movement of God, a revival, an awakening of some kind. 
and they were so excited, they decided to change their name. And they became the Church of God with fire. <laughs> there was, in fact, a group of people in the church who were not too keen on the name change. And so they up and left and went to a different part of town and started another church. And Pastor Dick said what they should have named their new church was the Church of God without fire, because that's why they were starting that church. They were against it, okay? We value being right more than we value being together. We value being right more than we value being together. And I think it should be the other way around. I think we should value our Christian unity more than we value being right. Jesus actually prayed for you and me in the Bible. Did you know this? Jesus prayed for the disciples that would come along way after the fact. That's you and me. And this is what he prayed for us. I am praying not only for these disciples right here with me, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. That's us. I pray that they will be what? One. Just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they believe that in us you sent me so that the world will also believe. There's some typos in that. You'll have to forgive me for that. Fire that administrative assistant. Oh, that's me. <laughs> that's me. The Apostle Paul picks up this theme in Ephesians, this desire for unity and oneness. And that's going to be the passage that we're in today in Ephesians chapter 4. Over the last several weeks, I've been teaching from Ephesians. It's one of 13 letters of Paul that we have in the New Testament. And Paul, when he was on his way to Damascus, he had an apocalypto, okay, and Apocalypto is, he was on his way to Damascus and he was convinced Jesus is bad for the Jewish religion. Jesus is bad. We need to arrest these people who are following Jesus and da, da, da. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, whoa, Jesus, you're the Messiah. Holy cow. What was hidden became revealed. And that's at the core of this letter to the Ephesians, okay? As we pivot to the second half of Ephesians, Ephesians we're going to see Paul articulate how to live a life worthy of their calling, how to be the multi-ethnic family of God where God's spirit dwells. And that's Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm going to read through verses 1 through 16, and then we're going to go through it verse by verse. And there's some controversial things in here, so we should have fun, okay? We should have fun. Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you, I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you've been called into one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is over all and in all and living through all. However, he has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. That's why the scriptures say, when he ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. Notice it says he ascended. This clearly means Christ also descended to our low, lowly world. 
And, at the same, and the same one who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens so that we might, he might fill the universe with himself. Now these are the gifts that Christ gave to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip, equip God's people to do the work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We won't be influenced when people try to trick us with lies uh, so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we'll speak the truth in love growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly, and each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. If I have a big idea or a bottom line today, it's simply this. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit. So let's walk through this a few verses at a time. This first little section here, therefore I, a prisoner of the Lord. Paul is basically saying in light of everything that I've talked about in chapters one, two, and three, I want you to live this life, this life worthy of all of that. You have been elected, predestined, adopted, redeemed, and now you're part of God's family. So in light of this, allow God's spirit to work in you to change your conduct, to change how you live with one another. And how do you do that? You clothe yourself with things like humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. These are social virtues, communal virtues. You can't be gentle all by yourself. You can't love all by yourself. You can't be patient all by yourself. You can try, right? But these are meant to be done in the context of community. And they're to make every effort to do what? United. Some effort, a little effort, phoning it in effort. <laughs> every effort to maintain this united in the spirit. We don't create unity. We don't create unity. God's spirit creates that, but we can maintain it. Our job is not to mess it up. So let's walk through these next verses. There's one body, one spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. This is that famous one passage. Uh, people like to make this into a creedal affirmation. The truth of the matter is, there is some of that in this one faith part. When Paul says one faith here, he is talking about a set of affirmations that the early Christians did together. They would say these things out loud in, in, uh, in their worship services. And what they were saying had to do with the death uh, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It had to do with who is Jesus. And you can read about these creedal affirmations and things like the apostolic tradition and what we call the Didache. Um, and so they did have, and these same creedal affirmations were spoken in Jerusalem, in Rome, all throughout what is modern day Turkey, all the Christians said the same things about Jesus. Okay. Then the next couple of verses, verses seven and following, he's given each one of us a special gift. I love the fact that God's gift to the church is people. <laughs> 
If you have Pentecostal friends, this is where they get their notion of fivefold ministry. It's right out of here, out of Ephesians 4. Um, he has given each one of us a special gift. That's why the scriptures say when he ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives. Oh, I want to I explain this. Does this seem weird to you? What is Paul talking about? He led captives and ascended and descended, and this is crazy, weird stuff. What's going on? This is Psalm 68. In Psalm 68, the psalmist is describing uh, a crowd of people going up Mount Zion into the city of Jerusalem. And the people are showering the victorious king with gifts because he's led his people to victory. And Paul reverses this. And Paul's like, he has Psalm 68 in mind and he says, yeah, yeah, you know that Jesus is a king, but he's not a taker, Mitch. He's not receiving gifts. No, Jesus is a giver. He's giving gifts to his people. And so Paul reverses this imagery from, from Psalm 68. Um, and then at the end of Psalm 68, if I can read this passage, you'll remember this from last week. The psalm ends with this. God is awesome in his sanctuary. The God of Israel gives power and strength to his people. <gasps> we just heard that last week, didn't we, in Ephesians 3? I think Paul has Psalm 68 in his brain as he's writing this letter to the Ephesians, okay? And then we finally get to the, the gifts where he spells it out. That's Ephesians 4, 11. He says, yes, Christ has given gifts. God has given gifts to his people. And these gifts are people, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Again, that's where our Pentecostal friends get this notion of fivefold ministry. The beautiful thing about this list is that it's not the only one that Paul has. It's not the only one we have of gifts uh, of people in the New Testament. There's a list in Romans 12. There's a list at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 12. Another list, a different list at the end of 1 Corinthians 12. There's this list in Ephesians 4, and there's another one in 1 Peter 4. But all these people are working together to bring about growth. Apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, these are bringing about growth in the body. And that growth is characterized by three things. A unified set of convictions about Jesus, full maturity. Paul uses words like holy, blameless, and perfect to talk about that kind of maturity. And complete Christ-likeness. So when you hear in the church people say, hey, you should be like Jesus, they mean it. <laughs> they mean it. And they get it right out of Scripture. Okay? Paul has in mind here, though, mutual service. What Paul does not have in mind is how we do church a lot in America where you have a professional ministry that provides goods and services to religious consumers. Paul does not have that in mind. Paul has we all, one another, each other. That's the language that Paul uses because he sees every believer as a minister. And then he picks it up. We will no longer be immature children. He uses a lot of analogies here. Basically, his picture is, we won't be a crying baby in a boat in a stormy sea. Do you want to be in a boat led by a baby crying in the middle of a storm? I don't either. <laughs> I don't either. Um, but it's healthy, growing, and full of love. So all of this working together that these people, these gifts to the church are doing, they're bringing about health, growth, and lots of lots of love. Would you like to be part of a church like that? Yes, I would too. I would too. And then 
at the end of this, Paul uses this word. He talks about Christ being the head of the church. So I, I want to pause and explain this word to you because we all come from different traditions. So this is the Greek word kephale, which translated here, we translated in English into the word head. So if I were to take you into the lobby after the service and I will, were to bring somebody along and I were to say, I want you to meet Pam Lee. Pam is the head of advancement at Asbury University. You would immediately go, oh, Pam's in charge. She's the boss. She's the leader of advancement at Asbury. That's how we tend to use head. If you have an assistant coach and a head coach, the head coach is the boss, the leader. There's a Hebrew word, uh, rosh, and rosh means the same thing. It means leader, uh, boss, and authority over. But kephale in Greek means something a little different. Kephale means more source or origin. So they saw the head as the source of everything in the body. Um, and the reason that I think it's important to know that is because Back in the day, so a little before Jesus' day, a bunch of Jewish scholars got together and they translated the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, into Greek. So they translated it from Hebrew to Greek. The little boxes that you're seeing on this picture are the 180 times that the word rosh is used in those Hebrew scriptures to convey leader, boss, and authority over. Of those 180 times, only six of them do they choose the Greek word kephale. In other words, for these Jewish scholars that were translating the Old Testament, when they wanted to convey the boss in charge of, in authority over, they didn't like this word kephale. They used different words. So I want you to keep that in mind when you read about Christ as being the head of the church. Because again, we're Americans, and we see that English word, and that's what we think of and we're like, oh, head is boss. And that's how it is. But you have to understand the context in the words. Um, so Paul is saying Jesus is the source, the origin of the power and strength and all the things he's been talking about. That's where you get it from. That's who originates all that stuff in the church. Is Jesus also the leader of the church? Absolutely. <laughs> and there are many words to use to describe that. Uh, Jesus is Lord is one of those phrases that the earliest Christians used to convey that. So again, we're to make every effort to do something. I'm just curious if you've still been awake. We're to make every effort to keep what? United. Unity, be united. Okay, you were, okay, I feel a little better. <sighs> okay, yes, make every effort to keep the unity. So let me ask a couple of questions. How does the gospel bring diverse people together in unity? And what might that look like? How does the gospel bring diverse people together and what might that look like? And then secondly, how does this passage invite us to think differently about Christian growth and maturity? I'll give you a hint. It's the difference between a me thing and an all y'all thing. Okay? So let's flesh that out. How do we take this home? How do we live this? How do we apply this? First of all, unity matters to Jesus and unity should matter to us. Unity matters to Jesus and unity should matter to us. I want you to recognize that because we're Protestants and because we're Americans, 
We have a history and a propensity to split, to break up, to divorce, to do all this kind of stuff over disagreements. In the 1800s, it was over doctrine. Over the last 30 years, it was about basically musical preferences. <laughs> Just going to call a spade a spade, okay? Uh, unity matters, but unity is not the same thing as uniformity. Uniformity is uh, stuff like agree with me on every issue, listen to my music, watch my movies, care about the things I care about, dress like me, think like me, vote like me. That's uniformity. Team America is on the uniformity bus right now. It's no bueno. <laughs> it's no bueno. So unity means that we're family. We've been brought together in Christ Jesus, and that means we bear with one another. We bear with one another when the music isn't the music we like. We bear with one another when people don't use the church building the way we think it ought to be used. We bear with one another when the pastor doesn't preach on the stuff that we think is important. We bear with one another when people in our church family don't vote the way we think they should vote. We bear with one another. One of the most heartbreaking things for me as a pastor in the last three years has been listening to my pastor friends talk about their church families and the people that up and left them because they wouldn't take a stand on Trump. So some people were saying, pastor, you need to stand up and tell people they need to vote for God's candidate, Donald Trump. And there were other people saying, pastor, you need to stand up and tell people that Trump is Satan incarnate and he's going to ruin everything. And then there were people that were like, pastor, you need to stand up and take a stand and you know, tell people to mask up for their brothers and sisters. And then there were other people that were like, Pastor, you need to stand up and tell people that they better not wear those masks and be a sheeple. Pastor, you need to make sure that the church is open. The church never closes its door. Pastor, you need to take care of the vulnerable, right? And so I had one story after another of my pastoral friends talk about people who up and left and did the whole Klingon thing. I'm a Star Trek fan. There's a Klingon thing when they expulse you they have these pain sticks. They go, and they turn their back on you, and you have to walk with all of their backs turned to you. And that's what many of my pastors experienced from people who up and left. Did any of that have to do with the deity of Christ? No. Was any of it essential for salvation? No. And yet, they disaffiliated. Unity should matter to you and me more uh, than it typically does for most Americans. And it should matter to us as much as it matters to Jesus. The second thing is that Christian growth and maturity happen in the context of relationship. I know this firsthand because I'm now uh, still in my starter marriage of 33 years. And I'm still learning and growing in all the ways that I need to learn and grow. And so, for example, I did not know that when I married Jenny, that what it really was is it was an opportunity for me to grow as a human being, as a father, as a husband, that I would have to learn patience. I would have to learn how to forgive. I would have to learn how to serve and to defer to my wife. I would have to learn all of these kinds of things. And it was hard and painful. And it was in the context of relationship. So Christian maturity comes about in the, in, the, in the context of relationship. So I, I thought it might helpful to describe what Christian maturity is not. And I'm going to steal these from a guy named Kerry Nuihoff, who's a Canadian. But he hits it on the nail. Here's what Christian maturity is not. Christian maturity is not how much Bible you know. 
for a long time in the church, we made Bible knowledge like it on a stick. And the more Bible knowledge you knew, like we'd make have you run classes. I mean, you got promoted in the church if you had Bible knowledge and knowledge about God. But pride in how much Bible you know, like when is it ever a good thing to look down your nose at other people because they don't know the Bible as well as you? Like, so Bible knowledge is not necessarily a sign of Christian maturity. Truth without grace I've encountered people in life uh, who say to me, Max, I'm just taking a stand for truth. <laughs> that was a truth bomb that went off. <laughs> and I think to myself, I think you're just being a jerk. Like, I think that's what the thing is. I don't think this has anything to do with truth. I think this has to do with being a jerk. Like, okay, Jesus was always grace-filled as he spoke what is true. So truth without grace is not a sign of maturity. Grace without truth is not a sign of maturity. Truth has a backbone. Now, we nailed that backbone to the cross. <laughs> but truth, uh, grace has a backbone. Base, sorry, grace has a backbone, okay? So you cannot separate grace from truth any more than you can separate truth from grace. Another sign that is not maturity. Maturity is not harshness toward outsiders while cutting insiders slack. So the way that tends to work in the church is, so you'll get a lot of people who will say, the world is awful, the world is sinful, the world is evil, and God hates sin, and God hates all of that. And the people that say that are partly true. Sin is bad, God does hate sin. The world has a lot of evil in it. That's also true. But they'll say that as though they're not in the world and as though sin isn't in them at all. <laughs> and the reality is, it is, right? And so I think a better, a better more uh, humble way of going about that is naming sin, but also naming the sin that's in inside at the same time. Um, what would happen if we started talking about church sins, Gossip, gluttony, division, hatred, the same way we talked about, say, sexual sins. What would happen to our witness in the world if we did those things? And then the last thing that Christian maturity is not is telling people you're mature. So I know this is the case because in another subject called authority. Anytime I encounter somebody who's like 20 or whatever and they say, I'm in charge. As soon as that comes out of their mouth, you know. They're not in charge. <laughs> if you have to say it, you do not have the power. You do not have the authority. No one recognizes your power and authority as soon as you're saying it. Like, you know, it's like with a parent and a two-year-old. Like, I'm the boss. Like, if you have to fiercely say that to the two-year-old, like, you're not in charge. Okay, that's how that works. So when you're saying, I am so mature, like, just understand it's probably not the case. Okay, it's probably not the case as soon as you have to tell someone. Okay? So... Let me, let me kind of summarize this as, if I can. Generations Community Church. If we're to take heart what God is saying to us through the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, I believe it means we should be working for the good of our city and community with other believers when we can. And there are going to be times when we can't, but we should be working for the good of our city and community with other believers when we can. And then secondly, I think it means affirming the truth in loving ways. Affirming the truth in loving ways, preferably with a dose of humility. 
A few years ago, uh, Generations produced a handout listing every Christmas Eve service in the community. And we walked the parade route at Nicholasville's St. Nick Fest handing these out. It was a simple thing, and it listed every Christmas Eve service in Nicholasville and Wilmore. And as we were handing it out along the parade route, we got the stereotypical thank yous. And then I got a front row seat to utter amazement. Hey, honey, look at this. It's all the churches. Ding, <laughs> ding, <laughs> right? Wait, this isn't just one church? Yeah, like Jesus is inviting you to his church. It's like everywhere on every corner virtually. <laughs> like, you know, yes, you can get in on this, okay? So it really said something to me. So I simply have a question. What would happen... What would happen if people in Nicholasville, Wilmore, and Jessamine County could see churches praying together and working together where they can for the good of the community? Would it detract from the gospel or would it commend the gospel? 